Welcome to Gateway's Podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, good morning, Gateway. Um, My name is Jeff Pruitt. I'm the Children and Young Families Pastor here, if I haven't uh, met you before. And um, Jeremy and Pastor Don are, I think, today on their way back from Israel, um, so they'll be back with us next week. But um, it's getting an amazing having these great volunteers and worship team that just steps right in and leads worship so well every week, whether or not Jeremy's here or not. Uh, it was so good. Um, so thank you guys. Um, we're continuing today in, in the series that we're doing this, this summer where we're looking through uh, the book of Psalms. We're not going to do every Psalms because there's over a hundred Psalms, um, but we're picking 10 or so of, of our favorite ones or ones that have had <clears throat> an impact in our lives. And uh, we're sharing uh, a little bit about each of the Psalms. So this morning we'll be in Psalm 8. So if you have your Bible, if you have your app, however you access God's word, Psalm 8 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. So yesterday I did something that, you know, I've lived in Columbia or uh, probably 30 plus years of my 43 years um, and something I've never done before in Columbia, I did yesterday for the first time. It was one of our neighbor's birthdays and um, so all of our neighbors, we have like a little cul-de-sac and we all hang out together and stuff and and she wanted to go uh, tubing down the river downtown. and. You know, I've heard people do this before, and my friends had done it growing up and everything, and, and I had never tubed down the river before growing up. So sure enough, yesterday for the first time, uh, you put in on little center tubes on, uh, right by the zoo, and you basically just float down the river all the way past downtown to where Carolina Baseball Stadium is, and right past Carolina's Baseball Stadium is, is where we got out. Um, and so for the first time I, I, I've ever done that, a couple things I noticed is the water, the river is really, really cold, uh, much colder than Lake Murray, much colder than any, any pools right now. Uh, I guess that flowing water just doesn't warm up. And so it was freezing cold. And uh, there's a lot of rocks down there. So you'll be like, you'll be cruising along, just something all of a sudden, boom, like right underneath, you'll just run right into a rock and you got to like raise up and let it get in. I mean, over and over again, then you get out to kind of get in the water, out of the water, get up on some rocks and you just smack right into rocks here and there. Um, But Lauren and I both went with our neighbors and we left the kids at home because we wanted to try it out first. We want to take them now. Um, But when I got home, they were just kind of like, well, well, what'd y'all do? And I said, well, we floated down the river. And they're like, yeah, but but what'd you do? And that's what we did. We floated down the river. And they're kind of like, like, that doesn't sound fun. Uh, but, um, but what I should have said to them, this is really what we were doing, was we were just enjoying nature, right? I didn't think of it in the moment is that you're floating down the river and you're just kind of, I mean, you're forced to kind of just lay up and look up and you see uh, just the God's creation all around you and nothing else. Every once in a while, you might see a, uh, the highway, the interstate on the left or a, a train tracks or a bridge here or there. But for most of the journey, you're just, enjoying the river and the trees and nature and the animals um, and the alligators and some, no, I'm joking, no alligators. Uh, we didn't see any snakes either. We saw a really big rat that was like this size. That was kind of nasty. Um, and a lot of turtles. But you just, we just enjoyed uh, nature. And um, 
I was thinking about this passage because I was preaching today, yesterday, as I was just kind of floating down the river uh, because it just fits so well with what I'm going to be uh, sharing with you guys this morning and the, and the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning. So another thing that I enjoy doing that I picked up uh, about two years ago as a hobby is playing golf. And it's a similar thing where, you know, golf is one of those things. I actually went with a bunch of guys from Gateway uh, to the golf course and played. And you know what happens? You hit one really good shot out of the 120 shots that you hit the first time you play and you're hooked. And you go back the next time, you may hit two good shots out of the 120. And you're like, I'm getting better. Yeah, yeah. So I've been hooked ever since that. And so I play golf as well some. And uh, it's really kind of the same thing. Like you're, you're playing golf. You're, you're trying to get better at that and the sport of it. But part of golf is just enjoying the nature and the surroundings that you're, going, that you're in. And I'll come back to that in a minute. In a minute. But Psalm 8 um, is a similar, in a similar vein. When, when David is, is writing this psalm, he's talking about nature. He's considering all of nature. You know, David probably had it a little bit easier back then because he didn't have all the technology we have. We, he didn't have electricity. He didn't have TVs or phone. He didn't have all of the distractions that we have where now in order to get out and truly in, enjoy nature, you really have to like plan it, right? You have to plan to go out. And my family isn't the most like nature loving family. So we don't do a lot of planning for those types of things. Um, so yesterday was a very stark contrast of our normal life where, but it was like, it was really cool. Um, but you know, David, he was a, he was a shepherd. Um, he was, um, uh, a farm guy. He had a lot of land. His family had tons of land. He was out attending to flocks all the time. No doubt many nights he had a campfire and he was out somewhere. Um, and so David spent the majority of his time outside in nature uh, growing up. And so uh, you can imagine as we read Psalm 8, you can just think and uh, like, um, yeah, imagine David as a young child growing up at a campfire after tending the flocks all day, looking up into the sky where there's, there's no, ch there's no um, building lights, there's no skyline to really distract from the darkness and the stark darkness of the, the sky and the uh, stars and the moon and everything else shining through. And so you can imagine David looking up and being in awe of what God has created. In a similar way to floating down this river yesterday, looking up and seeing the massive trees all around that are just towering above us and nature and the water and the rocks and all of these things. So I wanna read Psalm 8 just to start us off. And then really this morning, as I was reading this a couple weeks ago, there was two big observations that I wanna talk through. Uh, but the big idea of Psalm 8 is David considering creation, kind of like I was considering creation yesterday as I was floating down the river. And this is David's thoughts on when he looks up into the heavens and ponders all that God has created. So Psalm 8, we're just going to read through the whole psalm. It's only eight verses. And this is what he writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you even care for them? Yet you have made us or made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands and you've put under, put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And so you, you can imagine David uh, just considering, maybe he was sitting outside as he was writing this, seeing creation and thinking about the relationship that he or humanity has with creation, but then also thinking about the relationship between creation, humankind, and God. And so David is, is giving an a understanding that, that the creation is declaring and is showing and is singing the praise of the creator God who created it. And so David looks out into all of creation and sees how beautiful it is and how powerful it is and how majestic even the creation is and then says, if creation is this amazing, the creator God behind this creation must be even more amazing. And then he considers humanity, he considers us, he considers people and says, you know what's just as amazing is that God, you chose to put us as rulers over this magnificent creation. That you exalted us to a point just below the angels so that we as humanity have been given the, the rights to, to oversee and to cultivate and to manage and to watch over this beautiful creation that you, Creator God, have made for us. And so two, two considerations as I read through this. And the first one is, uh, is this theological Doctrine, I guess you would say, called the doctrine of general revelation. So this is the first thing that, that David is hinting at in, in the book of Psalms in Psalm 8. The doctrine of general, general revelation, that's a, lot, that's a very wordy way of simply just saying creation speaks to the truth of God. And throughout Scripture, as you read from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible is incredibly consistent about that fact. That God, in general, general Revelation says this, that God has made himself known to every person over the entire earth through his creation. And it says that when people can look out and they see creation, they know something about God. And creation tells us something about God. Creation speaks to the, the magnificence of God. Creation speaks to the beauty of God. Creation speaks to the order, orderliness of God. Creation tells every person on this earth something about the creator God behind the creation. And so that's why in, in Psalm 8, when David is, is considering the heavens and considering the stars and the moon and uh, the animals and the, thing, and the fish that swim and the birds in the sky and the flocks and the herds, he says, how majestic, Lord, is your name over all the earth. And, and that's why he says, you've set your glory in the heavens. And that's why he says that when I consider all of these things you've created, it brings my mind to think what an amazing God you are for what you have done for us. 
And so I want to read from Romans a, a very, as I said, from Genesis through Revelation, the same doctrine, the same truth continually comes out that God has made himself known through creation to all people everywhere. But one thing we know is that all people everywhere do not recognize that there is a creator God. And so in, in Romans 1, we're going to read from Romans 1. This is Paul later on, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, talking about the reality of general revelation and, and why, if God has made himself known to all people everywhere, why don't all people everywhere know God? And this is what Paul says. He's writing to the Romans and he says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people. What did these people do? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So they are suppressing the truth of God. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. So he doesn't say because people everywhere aren't clear if there is a God or not, or there's not evidence of God. They're saying it's plain to them. People everywhere see the evidence of God all over creation. His fingerprints are everywhere. They suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So Paul says that there is no anyone on planet Earth who has ever lived, who has ever existed, who has ever experienced anything in nature whatsoever has no excuse to deny the existence of God because God makes it clear through his creation. He continues on, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became uh, fools. So that's Paul's account of general revelation. So he takes it a step further, is that, is that God has made himself known to all people everywhere through his creation. And Paul says that although all people everywhere have this evidence of God, they suppress that truth, they darken their hearts and their minds, they choose to suppress it, to not believe it, to say, I'm not going to, to allow that into my thinking and into my heart due to our sinful nature, of course, that we all have. And they suppress that truth so that they say they don't believe in God and they say there's not enough evidence for God. But the reality is they're just suppressing that truth in their lives. You know, it, it brings me back a little bit to the, um, to the, the golfing thing, you know. Um, this is kind of what I think about because, you know, there's, there's this other uh, theological category called apologetics. And apologetics is, is making a, dis, a defense of the faith. It's, it's uh, creating arguments so that you can argue with other people to show them, not in a mean way, in a... In a in a constructive way to show them that, that what we believe is true and that our faith is true. And, and you know, apologetics has all these different categories and these different ways to, to, um, to argue for the faith, to support the faith. And, but scripture teaches us, they're all great, but scripture teaches us that everyone knows. 
Everyone in the back of their mind, in the, in the deep down in the recesses of their hearts that they've suppressed way down and way low, everyone recognizes the, the orderliness and the design and the beauty of creation, and it speaks to God's existence and his creation to every person everywhere. Some have suppressed it more than others. Some have received it. Some have accepted it. It goes back to, to the golfing thing, and I enjoy golfing, and, and this is why I think this is so important to understand, because I would never, you know, what if I were to go out to a golf course and, you know, look out, and some of the guys I play with say, you know, it's amazing how, how this golf course, how it, like, ran, how it just, like, set up randomly perfect for all these different golf holes. Like, it's amazing how the, the, like, just in this area, they found this area where there's these clear pathways for fairways, and there's these little dugout areas that, that are like bunkers, and there's this nice risen, like, um, like, flat area where you could put a flag, and you could put uh, on the, make a green there, and put, and all this stuff. If I were to say that to my friends, like, and say, it's, isn't it amazing how, like, randomly, like, this, this area was just, like, perfectly designed for this, it was just there, like, it wasn't designed, it was random, they'd say, are, are you stupid? or something, right? They say, what are you talking about? Obviously, it was designed, right? <laughs> it's designed because of the order of it. It was designed because of the beauty of it. You look out and you see this, this, this nice long fairway and these, these bunkers cut perfectly and this nice little green up here to, to hit your ball to and stuff. <clears throat> and in the beauty of that and in the design and orderly of that, you can know with beyond a shadow of a doubt without any other evidence, that's all you need to know that that golf course was designed by someone intelligent and built by someone intelligent and created by a person behind the scenes. It didn't just randomly show up like that. And you know, whatever you enjoy doing in your life and people across the world, whatever they enjoy, everyone doesn't enjoy golf, but some people, they might be musicians. You know, musicians don't like hear a piece of, 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 uh, of music that is beautiful to their ears and then think, wow, that's amazing how somebody just randomly played notes for five minutes and they just came together in this beauty, right? No, musicians say that is a well-designed piece of work, right? Or you look at it like a piece of artwork if you're an artist and you say, that's amazing how somebody just splatted colors everywhere and it's this beautiful mountain and, and scenery and trees. No, it was well designed and thought out as they went along. There was an intelligence behind it. Or maybe if you're into architecture, you don't just say, look at this building. Isn't that amazing how they just dumped all these rocks and all these, these pieces of wood and paint and all this stuff together and look what happened. That's, that, no, we, we all see through beauty and design, we understand there is an intelligent designer behind it, right? And so that's the doctrine of general revelation is, is simple, is that is what it is saying is that in creation, there is a design, an order, and a beauty that everyone should recognize the intelligent designer behind it. That everyone should see creation whether you're floating down a river or you're driving to work or you're sitting outside on your porch at night or you're looking over Lake Murray, whatever it may be, when you look out and you see the design and order and beauty of nature, every person on earth's first thought should be, how majestic is your name in all the earth, O Lord. And that's what Psalm 8 is telling us. And Paul is saying, unfortunately, for many people, they suppress that truth. 
And so here's the next, next thing I want to share and the next observation I have in Psalm 8 is, is kind of asking the question, and Paul kind of already answered it, is, is why is that the case? Why, why do people suppress that truth? We know it's because of a sinful nature, and we know because our sinful nature creates a few things inside of us that cause people to suppress the truth of God. You know, one of those things that sinful nature creates inside of us is pride. One of the things the sinful nature creates inside of us is selfishness. And those create the situation where we want to be autonomous. And when pride and selfishness and autonomy come together, what it creates is a situation where any possibility of someone having any kind of control over us, we're going to suppress that. <clears throat> we're going to deny that. We're going to move away from that. And so if you, as a human being, if you say there is a creator God behind this beauty, behind this design, <clears throat> behind this order that you see throughout our world, if you agree to, yes, there is a creator God behind that, then you also have to agree that there is a creator God who created us. And you agree that there's a creator God who created us. You have to agree that that creator God has say in who we are, what we do, and how we live our lives. And people do not want to do that. Because what God has done is God's created, I like to call it the God of paradox. And that's what I find in the rest of this psalm, the God of paradox. Because God has set up our world in a way that it's very paradoxical. You know, paradox is things that seemingly are opposites, but they're actually not opposites when you dig a little deeper. Things that seemingly don't make sense that actually do make sense when you think about them a little bit deeper. And throughout this psalm, uh, you see constant paradox when David talks about, thinks about, and sings the praises of God. And here's, here's a few of them. Um, and I think these are the reasons why people reject God in their lives, because they don't want to live out this life of paradox. And you'll see why in a moment. Here's the first one. Let's look back at verse 2, Psalm 8, verse 2. And there's going to be two in here. This is what, what David said. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So let's just start out with, with children and infants. And let's think even to Jesus when, when the disciples, when Jesus was busy and there were children who wanted to come and see Jesus and the disciples tried to keep them away and Jesus said, no, have them come to me. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is made up of people such as these. And when Jesus said, I think it's in Matthew 21, he said, he said you know, that, that we should have faith like faith of children and infants. And it leads and it speaks to this paradox that God has created in the world. And it's this, it's that weakness is strength. Weakness is strength in the kingdom of God. People don't want to live that truth out. But it's the praise of children and infants that silence the foe and the avenger. It's not a show of our strength or our might. So you can imagine going to, to someone in the world and saying, all right, I want, to show, I want to show that I'm strong. I want to show that I'm capable. I want to show that I'm able. So if you ask someone in the world, in society, uh, not at a church, just maybe a believer, probably not a believer, and you said, how do I show strength in my life? 
How many of them would you think would say, well, the first step is to admit all your weaknesses and admit your failure and be okay with not being good at things and be okay with not knowing everything and being okay with having some holes in your life that don't really work out well. But that's what scripture says over and over and over again. We think of Paul in Romans. He says that, that he had a thorn that was placed in his side. That he asked God, take away this weakness from me, God, please. And he said, God said, no, I am not gonna take away the weakness because it's in that weakness is where strength is really found. And so the first paradox that God has set up in the world is, is that weakness is strength, that when we realize and recognize our weakness, when we admit to our weaknesses, when we allow for the weaknesses to be known in our life, God shows up in power and strength in those weaknesses because we now depend on God to be strength in those weaknesses. But people don't want that in their lives because people want autonomy. People are prideful. People are selfish. People want to say, I'm strong. I can do it on my own. We've all had kids that say, I can do it. I can do it all I can. I can do it on my own. I'm strong enough by myself. I don't need anyone else. And God said, when you posit that strength towards people, you're the weakest you've ever been. But if you really want to be strength, strong, show off your weaknesses, admit to your weaknesses. Next one, continuing in, in verse two, where it says, it says, the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies, silencing the foe and the avenger. And so the next paradox that, that constantly shows up in the world and in scripture is that praise is power. Power is not power. Praise is not is power. Power is not power. <clears throat> you can imagine going to, you know, I think of, well, I think of the Battle of Jericho, right? The Battle of Jericho. When Joshua fit the bottle of Jericho, right? What was Joshua's primary marching orders from God? Praise. Go around, the, go around, the, go around Jericho, praising God, sounding the trombones, hitting the trumpets, doing, hitting the trombone, you know what I'm saying. Sounding the trumpets, hitting the, 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 the drums. Praise me and I will take care of it. But what if you were to go, let's say you were into the military, the U.S. military, and there was a, there was a stronghold set up, there was a, an aggressor, there was a, an enemy that was, that was um, threatening the United States. We went to the military and said, all right, we need some power and some strength to handle this enemy that's coming against us. What would we do as a nation? What would we do here on the earth? It's what anyone would do, right? We would build up as much force as we could, as much strength, as, as much display of power that we can, right? So that we can have more power and more strength than the others. And so when it comes to a physical battle, power defeats power, right? More power will defeat lesser power. But when it comes to spiritual things, the things of God, and when we recognize that there's a spiritual world and a spiritual realm that is behind the physical that we see, more power isn't what defeats power. Praise is what defeats power. And so if there's a stronghold in your life that's, that Satan has a piece of your life that he's holding on to, it could be a thought that you have in your mind, it could be an emotional thing that you have, a mental thing, it could be a physical thing. There's many different ways that, that Satan has these little strongholds or these little pieces of your life that you just can't seem to, 
to give, give over to God. You can't seem to overcome, the, you can't seem to break through these things and you've done everything you can. You've given it all the power that you have. What God says is, is it's not in your might, it's not in your power, it's in the praise of me and letting my power in that praise. That's how you overcome these strongholds and that's how you overcome the enemy and that's how you silence the foe and the avenger. And so it's through praise that we really experience the presence and the power of God. Next one, humility is exalting. Humility, exalting, two seemingly opposite things that God uses together. Humility is exalting. Let's read verses three through six. This is what the psalmist says. David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So David looks out over, over creation and sees the beauty and the magnificent of it. And he says, what is man? Like, why are we even important? How, we are so small and so minute. How, God, do you even consider us? That's the heart of humility, right? That's the heart of, God, I don't deserve everything that you've given to me. That's in stark contrast to, I don't know, let's think like the Tower of Babel, if you know the story of the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel, the people saw the heavens and they saw the creation and they, and they said, you know what? I'm strong, I'm important, so I'm gonna build a tower all the way to the heavens so that I can sit on the throne of heaven. That's the opposite of what David is saying here. David is saying, what am I? Why am I even considered God? Why am I important? And it's through that humility that he experiences God's exalting of him. It, it carries on to the next paradox, <coughs> which is this, reward is given. Reward is given in the kingdom of God, not earned. Reward is given in spiritual things. Continues with verses five through seven. Let's look back at it. He says, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? What is his response to those questions? He says, you, God, have made them a little lower than the angels. You, God, have crowned them with glory and honor. You, God, have made them rulers over the works of your hand. You, God, you put everything under their feet. And so when he looks out and he recognizes, well, we actually are really important. We actually are exalted. In his humility, he realizes humanity has an exalted place on this earth and on this in this creation. But it's not because we earned it, right? It's not because we showed God that we were capable of responsibly caring for creation. We all know that we don't do a great job with that many times. But, but it's not because we earned it. It's because it was given by God. So Paul says, you put us there. You placed us at the pinnacle of creation. You gave us this rule and this management over the earth. It was a gift that you gave to us, not something that we earned. <coughs> no different than our salvation. If you read in the New Testament and read throughout Scripture, it says salvation is a gift 
for the grace of God, not something that we have earned. And so scripture's message is clear. It's consistent from beginning all the way to end that our exaltation, our, our reward, our status is something given to us by God, not something that we earn by doing better or more for God. And you know, that's, it's crazy because that's not the way of the world, right? The way of the world is the opposite of that. If you want status in this world, in the corporate world, if you want status in, in our world, in society, or wherever it is, I mean, the answers will be do more. Show yourself more powerful. So show yourself strong. Don't admit to your weaknesses. Play to your strengths. Do whatever you can to build yourself up, to puff yourself up, to show more and how much better you are. It's a self, um, selfish, self-indulging thing to make it all about you, make yourself as strong and powerful, as meaningful, as great as you can, let other people know that you're that way, and then you'll, you'll um, advance in society. That's a lot of our society is like that. And the ways of the world, the ways of the kingdom are the opposite of the ways of the world because God says, humble yourself. God says, become less, empty yourself, be humble, Recognize the gifts that you've been given. Don't think you've earned them. Praise me through them. Recognize what I have done for you and admit to your weaknesses and be okay with failures. <clears throat> and I want to close with, with the question of, of, you know, why? Why did God set the world up that way? Um, it's, a, it's a question that actually got, got posed to me a long time ago by I guess he was a high school. It was my first student ministry position. And, um, you know, when you're in student, a student pastor, there's always certain students who just, you know, they think really deep about things, right? And you, and you like, when he raises his hand or when he's, hey, I've got a question, you're always like, uh-oh, here we go. Because you always know it's going to be a, a really deep question where he's really been, like, struggling with something. And this guy was, I think he was raised Catholic. And um, he had been coming to the, the student ministry with a friend. And you could tell just in his mind he was trying to understand, uh, like, the gospel and, like, salvation being a gift and his whole life it has been about earning and doing more and, and showing yourself strong and powerful and, and, you know, building yourself up. And we were talking about how the gospel is a gift and how you humble yourself, you admit your sin, you admit your failure and your weakness, exactly what, what Psalm 8 is kind of hinting at. And, and I remember, I mean, I remember it to this day where it was a small group in my uh, house because I remember him looking up and just saying, I don't, he said, I just don't understand this. He said, it doesn't make sense to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, well, I have um, some, he played soccer. He said, I have, some, I have some soccer trophies in my room that are the most valuable things that I have. I think really highly of those trophies. They're really important to me. And he said, the reason they're so important to me is because I earned them. The reason they're so important to me is because me and my teammates, we put a lot of work in we practiced a lot. We, I mean, we just, you don't know how much work it took to earn those trophies. And he said, and those are some of the most important things in my life. I value those things so much. And so he said, I feel like if, if I don't earn it, then I can't value it. Um, and, you know, he had a problem that he was thinking the way of the world. 
He, he wasn't fully understanding this paradox the way that God works. And I think God just gave me the words in that moment because no one had ever asked me that before and I never really thought through it before. And, you know, I said, well, tell me, okay, that, those, those um, trophies are really important to you. All right, what is something else that is important to you um, that you didn't earn? That's what I asked him. And he said, well, I can't remember what it was, but I think it was his car. He said, well, you know, my parents gave me a car when I turned 16 as a gift. Um, and, and I have this car that I, I really, it's up there with the trophy. It's pretty, pretty close and, and how much I value that as well. I said, great, perfect. And I said, well, tell me, when you look at those trophies, what do you value? And he said, well, I value the trophies. He said, you don't really value the trophies. The trophies aren't the thing that you value. He said, yeah, that, that's probably true. It's what the trophies signify. I said, yeah, what, what do they signify? He said, he, it signifies that I put a lot of work in, signifies that, that I suffered a lot, that I struggled a lot, that I trained a lot, that I learned a lot, that I spent a lot of time, and that we as a team and I, we, we won something important and that we were the best, so to speak. And I said, you know, what I hear a lot is it, those trophies just signify how great you are, right? Those trophies just signify how much you've done. He said, yeah, that's, that's kind of the importance of it. I said, right, so let's talk about the car for a minute. Let's talk about the car. What, what, when you see that car and you think about the car and you have value for that car, I mean, yeah, you value it because it gets you where you need to go and it's great to have a car. I said, but think behind that. And when you think about the car, what is it that you value? What does it speak to? And he said, I think like a light bulb came on in his, his brain. He's like, well, that, that makes me really respect and love my parents. I was like, why is that? He said, because my parents gave me that car. And I said, yeah. And I said, and he said, you know, now that I think about it, you know, the car is a lot more important than those trophies because it speaks to the relationship that I have with my parents. And it, and it, it speaks to what they've given me and all that they've cared and how much they've cared for me. And so I said, well, let's, let's think about this. Why then, then why does God give you salvation? Why is it something that you can't earn? Why does God not want you to earn it? Or you probably could, but we all have sin. Why is God okay with you not being able to earn it and instead him giving it to you? And he said, well, I guess if I earned it, then it would be a trophy that I get to hold up and say, look at me. It's like, that's right. But if it's a gift that God has given to me, it's something I hold up and say, let's look at God, the giver of the gift. And I said, yeah. You see, you got it. That's exactly right. Because a gift given to you magnifies the giver, not the gifted. And a trophy magnifies the person who earned the trophy, not the person who gave you the trophy. Who did, if I were to ask him, who gave you that trophy? He's like, I don't know. Some guy just handed it to me. Because it doesn't matter. If you earn a trophy who gave it to you, it really doesn't matter that much. You earned it. It's yours. It's all about you. But he knew who gave him his car, right? He knew the giver of that gift and it spoke to the giver. And so I think when I read Psalm 8 and when I read through, really just think through the whole message of scripture, this idea of the gift of creation that God has given us, but even more importantly, the gift of salvation that God has given us. That's the reason why he has, God has set up the world in this paradox. Because he doesn't want our salvation he doesn't want our relationship 
with him to be a trophy that we hold up to the world and say, look what I have. Look what I earned. Maybe if you work a little harder, maybe if you do a little more, maybe you can earn one of these too. That's not how God set the world up. That's not what salvation looks like. God wanted salvation to be a gift because then we hold up the gift and we say, look at this amazing gift that the giver, creator God gave to me. Isn't that amazing that God would do this for me? Let me tell you about this giver of this gift. And guess what? He wants to give it to you too. And so our salvation is not a trophy to hold up. Our relationship with God is not a trophy to hold up, to say, look what I have, look what I earned, it's look what I did. Salvation is a gift to say, look what God has given to the world. And look at this gift that you can have as well. Let's pray.